Well, good evening, everyone. <clears throat> we are uh, going to begin right on time tonight looking at the 19th century Catholicism that uh, we have been uh, working towards, trying to understand uh, all the different effects that the, uh, the 1800s brought to both the church, uh, the Catholic church. Uh, at some point, we'll be looking at the Eastern Orthodox as well. Um, most of our focus has been on uh, Protestants and some of the more radical reformers, um, and especially uh, splinter groups off, Shakers, Quakers, uh, Baptists, Presbyterians, Methodists, Congregationalists, and things like this. But it is important to remember that uh, Catholicism, just because the Reformation happened, and I know as Protestant, most of my church history focus is going to be Protestant, um, but it's important for us to realize that those who um, those who would be considered Orthodox uh, Christians, at least in their belief and in their approach to things, um, also went through a great deal of changes and a great deal of uh, effects uh, with regards to the way in which they saw the world uh, functioning. So um, as we go into the 19th century, it's important for us to realize not only are there uh, apocalyptic groups and splinter groups and brand new religions and brand new ways of interacting with the world, but Catholicism itself and Eastern Orthodoxy and uh, all the other uh, issues in Protestantism continue to trudge forward in history. And it is important for us to understand um, just where these things have gone. Um, modernity, as we've been talking about, um, both in the, uh, in the scientific revolution, as well as in the modernist movement, in the enlightenment, and especially into the radical enlightenment, a lot of the challenges that came down uh, towards Protestants also came down towards Catholics. Um, and, and the same issues are dealt with, but they're dealt with in a different way. Uh, and that's part of what we're going to be looking at tonight. And uh, that, that structure of answering back and interacting with the modern world as it is, uh, and as it was in the early 1800s and in the late 1800s, uh, is really going to be our focus tonight. So uh, 19th century Catholicism, I hope this is going to be of, uh, of clarity for some people and of interest. Um, as I have taught through church history uh, before, I've never spent an entire evening just looking at 19th century Catholicism. So um, it was a good thing for me to uh, learn about. Uh, it was a it was a, a quite a rewarding series of reads and preparations that I had to do for this. And uh, I'm, I'm kind of excited to share that with you tonight because it really helped clear up some questions I had in my own mind. Um, I've been through, as I've said, I've been through church history a lot of times, um, but never really, you know, after the Reformation, you don't really sit down as a Protestant and work through some of the histories of Catholicism. And, uh, and this really helped clear up some of the questions I had. And uh, hopefully I can do the same. Um, again, chat is available if you're here live watching. My welcome to you guys. Um, and, uh, if you are listening to this, which the vast majority of everyone listens to this after the fact, uh, you are welcome to leave a comment on our YouTube channel. Uh, you are also welcome to, uh, to send me an email, um, or, or to post up a review or a question or something like this, uh, on whatever podcast, um, uh, platform that you use. So let's go ahead and get into it here tonight. 19th century Catholicism, the 1800s. Uh, this won't just deal with um, American Catholicism. This is going to kind of be worldwide Catholicism, the way the Catholic Church uh, kind of sees itself. We'll be in France. We'll be in Italy. Uh, we will interact a little bit in America as well. Um, but generally, this is more of a conceptual base uh, concept, as well as uh, digging down into some of the specific events. Uh, Vatican I, for instance, um, papal infallibility, the Immaculate Conception dogma that was defined uh, here during this time. Um, and all of these. So let's go ahead and get into it. We have been talking about the issues of modernity uh, for, for uh, several weeks here. And it's appropriate because it did represent one of the most significant philosophical changes in the West that happened since the ancient world. Uh, the Renaissance uh, brought in not only uh, on, the, on the spiritual side or, or in the ecclesiastical side, the Protestant Reformation in the West, but it also brought about uh, a return back to uh, some of the political theories of the ancient world. It also helped usher in uh, a number of ways to approach the natural world, that it's not something that we have to do uh, purely through a, a theological lens, 
Uh, there is a lot of people that considered pursuing knowledge or epistemology of the world through a theological lens uh, that that was somehow a uh, a weight around their neck and and wanted uh, freedom from that and try to pursue knowledge into the world without what they would seem to uh, indicate uh, the the chains of religion or religious expression um, or even of just the rules of theology or ethics as it is uh, at least on those uh, at least on those places and so that kind of approach to the world <clears throat> that kind of naturalistic materialism that became part of the way in which we know things in the West really challenges not just the authority of popes and councils uh, or of pastors and churches, uh, but it challenges even kings and emperors. And we see an enormous political shift, uh, which to the Protestant world, as we've discussed, even the Puritan movements and into the Reformation in Geneva, you when when church and state get really close together and say church has a reformation, well, then that affects the state. And we saw that with the Smalkald articles, with the uh, Augsburg confessions. Uh, we saw this with uh, a number of the, the upheavals that happened in the English church, um, as well as for the Swiss churches as well. Uh, that kind of church and state together, when one, uh, when one has an issue, it affects the other. And so when you have a complete overturn of political order in the state side of things, it's going to affect the churches most significantly that are closest to the state. And that is going to be, especially in Europe, that's going to be Catholicism. Uh, Catholicism, Anglicanism, these ones are going to be affected when political uh, upheavals happen. When we switch from monarchies to parliaments or from monarchies to elected representatives, um, you know, this, this type of switch is going to affect not just the political order, but it's going to affect everything that's close to the political order. And some of these uh, branches of Christianity, we'll call it that, uh, are going to be affected much more deeply than other ones. Uh, and so when you're when you're dealing with this, this is not just a, a state change or uh, a change from monarchies to elected representatives or to parliaments. You're really dealing with uh, a, a complete rethinking of how we deal with authority itself. Popes and councils, even on the church side of things, really, especially in pietism and the Second Great Awakening, really becomes much more of self and knowledge and even emotion as sources of authority. Uh, the Bible and the denomination, in some instances, especially in the Radical Reformation or the Radical um, uh, the Radical Enlightenment, really, instead of the Bible and the denomination, becomes the science and the philosophical school. Uh, these types of switches happen in multiple places in the culture through several generations. And by the time we come to the early 1800s, uh, we've talked a lot about how the Protestant world was interacting with these things. We really haven't dealt with how the Catholic answer to these things uh, came about. There's a couple of reasons for that. One, uh, the way that Catholic theology works is you kind of have to wait for official statements on such things. And you really don't get that until Vatican I. Um, so, uh, and we're going to talk about Vatican one tonight. The last time that the Catholic church had had a synod was the council of Trent back in the 1500s as an answer to the Protestant reformation. That's where they came down on Protestants. Those who uh, say this, 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 and this, um, you know, anathema and, and, uh, you know, basically said, you know, what, what complaints the Protestant reformers had, what, what issues they had and what claims they're making, we're going to reject. We're going to establish uh, historical Catholicism uh, in its place. That happened in the 16th century. They did not have another, what they consider authoritative council in reality, a local synod um, that just had the Western church. They didn't have another one of those from 1560s all the way up until the mid to late 1800s. And that's where we're going to be tonight. Uh, because it really, it really is the first time where Catholicism is going to officially make statements about the issues that have been uh, going on in the culture throughout. And so, if you ask me, it was a little bit late in coming, but that's kind of one of the ways that um, this happens. Is you know what we've come to know as the modern Catholic Church can move a little bit quicker than the Church of the early 1800s, and you'll kind of see why that is. 
um, uh, here tonight. And the answer to all of these questions that have bubbled up, all of these questions of how is it that faith and reason are connected? Well, you will see the Catholic answer to that tonight. Um, and and by the way, I would be in full support of their answer on this uh, with one caveat, and I'll make a note of it when we're there, uh, did a decent job of answering the modernist uh, issues and some of these concepts about interacting with the natural world versus uh, interacting with scripture and what do we do when there's perceived uh, discord between them? How do we how do we solve those things? So they'll address some of these things. It's important for us to take note on that as well. Um, this whole change of culture affected everything. It wasn't just what things are in a charge, which authorities we have. It really even came down to instead of faith, we're just going to go on sight. You know, in, instead of theism, you know, we can theorize deism. You know, it, it's just removing away uh, some of the coverings of of these things to try to uh, establish it in the natural order only. Um, apologetics uh, gives way to philosophy. Um, not to say that philosophy and deism and sight and things like this didn't exist before, but the preferential treatment of of naturalistic answers to supernatural things is really kind of a new thing on the block uh, that that Catholicism is finally responding to here. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that, right? I mean, in Europe, the Protestant world is it just it is enwrapped and enmeshed in the political order in Europe. And that was something that really sounded the death knell for Protestantism in Europe uh, and also Catholicism, both just being so close to the governance uh, of those of those countries. It never worked out well. Uh, either you become uh, the destroyers or you become the destroyed. It, there is no real place where it hits this, uh, you know, almost um, almost theoretical symbiosis. You don't really ever get to that point. Um, and so you, you'll you'll see places like France where there is a, a push and a pull uh, of political power. Uh, you'll have them in one generation be thoroughly Catholic and in the next generation be loosely so. Uh, Germany at the same time uh, in the early 1800s was quickly becoming almost entirely secular. Uh, obviously, Germany uh, was the center of Lutheran uh, Lutheran theology and Lutheran political order, uh, at least in certain aspects, um, as much as Germany was a country at this point, uh, which is a little bit dicier to try to settle out. Um, it, as a culture, was becoming almost entirely secular in the early 1800s. Um, their, their work in philosophy, we'll talk about this when we get to liberalism, uh, was pretty advanced stuff. In America, the experience of, Catholic, uh, of Catholics in America uh, wasn't much easier. Uh, there was a lot of suspicion cast on Catholics due to their allegiance overseas, very similar to uh, what was happening with Anglicans before the Revolutionary War. You have the head of your church across the sea. They're not a part of this culture. They're not a part of this experiment here. Uh, and it's it's going to be seen as uh, intrusive, or at least as having, uh, you're having allegiances to, to authorities that aren't America. Uh, and that is, that is a hard thing for people to swallow because here, uh, here there was champion, at least in theory, if not also in mainly in practice as well of, uh, of self-governance. And, you know, I mean, it, it wasn't unusual to see flags at this time that flew above people's houses and things that said, you know, we serve no sovereigns here. Uh, you know, that that concept of we don't need kings, we don't need popes, and for some people, we don't need gods involved in our current day-to-day -day life. For some people, it did go that far. And so the, the influx of Catholics after the Revolutionary War uh, came in multiple waves from the early 1800s through the mid-1800s, and it did lead to a very large rise in anti-Catholic sentiment in the Americas, uh, or at least at least in North America. And there was a lot of, you know, books and riots and protests and things like this. And there was even a formation of an anti-Catholic political party, if you've never heard of this, uh, called the Know Nothing Party uh, in the 1850s. Uh, look it up. Interesting read. Um, you know, this kind of sentiment, you know, rooted back, obviously, in some of the disagreements between Protestants and Catholics, even from Europe, uh, you know, 
continued to fuel these uh, these issues between Protestants and Catholics as they immigrated to America. And American culture was changing rapidly. Uh, in fact, American culture has never set stagnant. It's always been on the move. Uh, it's always dealt with whatever newest thought concept found found hold here. Uh, it's why modernity came here so quick. It's why deism took on hold. It's why the Second Great Awakening took on hold. Pietism, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness. Uh, you, anything you want to do here, you can do here. And that's kind of the attitude of the world. And so to invite Catholicism in with open arms was looked at with suspicion by a lot of people uh, because Catholicism was kind of the, uh, the oh, how would you put it? Almost as this punching bag of, of why Europe failed so miserably uh, compared to the Americas. Now, is all that fair? Is all that right? No. Uh, but I'm trying to describe for us and, and create a picture for why certain effects and certain reactions happened. Um, you know, the, the issues that people had concerns over, you know, was, you know, what happens uh, with, you know, when the complexity of Rome's interactions uh, in an increasing secular world, what happens when a person or a citizen of America, for instance, is, uh, is led up to question their split loyalties. You know, what if what if Congress has us go one way and the Pope has us go another way? You know, what, are are they going to be good citizens, bad citizens? Or you know, is is the Pope going to try to intimidate Congress? Like, how is this going to work here? Um, you know, when when you have a, a nation like America, where you know there's a church-state separation, at least pursuit inside that nation. Catholicism, as it had grown up for many, many centuries, was built on functioning alongside and in multiple situations, especially over the rulers of a country. And so that really leads to a great deal of suspicion, a great deal of second guessing, even to the point of which we did not have a Catholic president until Kennedy, uh, John F. Kennedy, first Catholic president. And the current U.S. president is the second Catholic president in our history. And we've had a lot of Catholics on the Supreme Court, but we've only had two Catholics as president out of uh, out of 46 presidents. That's pretty remarkable. And it can, kind of shows you, and by the way, the reaction even in the 60s to John F. Kennedy being Catholic uh, kind of shows you that kind of issue still sits in people's minds. Um, and, and part of this is also, I don't want to put all the blame on people who are suspicious. Part of this has to do with that Catholicism never wanted itself seen as just another denomination of Christianity. Um, you know, they, they uh, largely did not want to be aligned with uh, any of the Protestant Reformation with regards to uh, all the different uh, distinctions between Protestants. Um, you know, even to the point where, you know, if you talk to someone who's Catholic today, they're not going to overly identify as Christian. They're going to identify as Catholic. Uh, and, and part of that is trying to distance from, uh, what is perceived as the confusion in the Protestant world over what right theology is and what, what clarity is. Um, but also, I mean, the same goes for, if you go back about two or three generations as well, even today, even in Protestant worlds, you know, are you a Christian? Yes, I'm Methodist. Are you a Christian? Yes, I'm Presbyterian. Yes, I'm Baptist. Um, you know, a lot of that throwing off of all titles has uh, has come about in the past couple of generations. But Catholicism still has not uh, has not largely done that. Um, and so there's there's still issues that uh, reside in people's minds about that. Um, the secularizing West is uh, and can be likened to you know, the, the early Roman uh, leadership that was trying to understand the differences between Judaism and Christians. And it's, it's hard because you have to put in a lot of effort to understand the differences. You know, I mean, here we are in church history class, we're many months in, and, you know, it's still difficult to lay down, you know, what differences and what distinctions there are between this side or that side. Um, the secularizing West is not going to sit around and go, wait, let's make sure uh, you know, you're Catholic, and so your theology is this here, but then you're Reformed, then you're Dutch Reformed, then you're Lutheran, and then you're Presbyterian. Yeah. Nobody's 
really going to be sitting around trying to pick apart all of these things. And so there is, there is kind of a, um, a, uh, almost a giving up of trying to settle out all of what's going on in the world uh, with the different perceived Christian denominations. So, uh, but Catholicism has tried with all its heart uh, to avoid being known as another denomination of Christianity, uh, but to be known as the Catholic church of the world. Um, kind of a hard claim at this point, but uh, you know, can't fault them for sticking to their guns on that one. Uh, the philosophical context of the world is changing as well. Uh, not only is there criticism of the Catholic Church's political relationships, but its relationship to truth was deeply challenged by the Enlightenment. It was deeply challenged by the scientific revolution as well. Um, and so it came to the point of where there had to be clarity made. Um, and Protestants and Catholics both have to answer for some of these things. Uh, and so they do. They, they interact with, with how to understand the world, how to express it, uh, how to interpret things properly, and how to have the, the expression of the scriptures, how to have revelation in the world, and how to have dogma in a world of increasing secularism. Uh, kind of one of the things that you know the modern church is going to have to start learning how to interact with as well. Um, the rising skepticism and uh, a popular rise, as we have said, in naturalistic materialism, especially in empiricism. Empiricism is this uh, how we know what to be true must come through the senses, right? This empirical, unless I can see it and hear it and taste it and feel it, you know, there, there's no sense in me, you know, uh, you know, residing on or, or, or settling on it as being true knowledge. Um, a lot of that does lead to direct challenges of how the Catholic Church functions. Um, you know, the same thing that's happening in the political world will happen uh, and is happening in some minds in the uh, in the Catholic Church as well. So what we have here uh, with regards to monarchical things becoming more uh, representative-led. So you go for king, then you have Congress or the states or parliament, and then you have the citizenry. Well, a lot of people would look at the Catholic Church's structure and say, obviously, you have something very similar here. You have Pope, then you have the councils, and then you have the laity. Uh, you know, you have the Pope and the cardinals, or you have the Pope and the hierarchy of the church, whatever it is, uh, and then you have the laity. And with an increasing concept of representative government, it's going to be very difficult for a structure like the Catholic Church to survive in this mode. Uh, without clarifying some things, and um, this is this is one of those things that first gets challenged and has to be restated um, with all of the political challenges that are coming up against king and country like that, and saying you know if you're going to tax us, we you better have representatives of us so we can vote on how those taxes are done. You know that that's kind of the foundation of American thinking, right? Uh, no taxation without representation. Well. In the Catholic Church, they're not exactly going to turn into a democracy. In fact, there's going to be a doubling down uh, of, of papal authority uh, in the light of all of this. And that's going to be one of the first places that we settle on tonight of how the Catholic Church reacts to and interacts with uh, these new challenges. I'm going to use uh, the classic example of this. Uh, so if you're taking notes, this is a great place to start writing if you haven't started writing yet. Uh, and that is the Immaculate Conception of Mary. The Immaculate, I-M-M-A-C-U-L-A-T-E, Conception of Mary. <clears throat> Why would I pick what is seemingly a random doctrine of the Catholic Church to settle on? The reason I'm going to settle on this is because it is not authoritatively defined as dogma and required belief for Catholics until 1854. Now, 1854, uh, the papal definition, Pope Pius IX, uh, the papal de definition of the Immaculate Conception of Mary uh, was put forth. Now, <clears throat> since I know there's a lot of Protestants that listen to this church history class, uh, I want to define this because I hear it misquoted all the time. The Immaculate Conception of Mary is about Mary's conception, not Jesus's conception. 
It's about in her mother that she was through a special dispensation of grace conceived without sin, without original sin, so that she could be a fit vessel to bear, uh, uh, to be the God bearer, uh, to bring about Jesus in the flesh. It wasn't that she was needed to be without original sin. It was that it made her fit to be so. Uh, and so that that's an important distinction. One, it is a, a statement about Mary. Ultimately, it is a statement about Christ, at least intended to be so in the beginning. Uh, it is saying that Mary was born without sin uh, in order to be prepared for the bearing of God. Um, and that she then went without sin nature throughout her life, did not sin. Uh, but the main focus is her conception. Uh, she was born without, she was conceived without original sin. And this was a special thing given to her. Now, now my main focus is not the doctrine of this or whether the doctrine is correct or not. Obviously, I'm Protestant. I'm not going to agree with this doctrine. But it is important to understand why at this point such a thing comes down. One, it's not a new teaching in the Catholic Church, but it had never been officially declared. Uh, Council of Trent knew, uh, did not speak on it. Uh, the, these things were not were not um, dogma before this. This is where uh, I'm focusing on this because this is where this was not decided by a council. This was not decided by the the College of Cardinals or anything. This is Pope Pius IX comes up and defines a dogma of the Church uh, while he while he went to many bishops and many cardinals and interviewed them and asked them questions and clarified and this and that, at the end of the day, it came down to his authority to say this. So the main issue with uh, this way in which he proclaimed this doctrine uh, was that he clarified um, that it is true in the way that he states it. It is by papal declaration. It is not by council. It is not by, uh, you know, cardinal meeting or anything like this. It is in 1854, Pope Pius IX defined as, and this is important, dogma, which is a required belief and something that has been taught clearly uh, by scripture and by the church, most importantly by the church, uh, and clarified as such as being necessary for uh, for communion with, uh, with the Catholic church. You are required to believe this. That's dogma. Uh, he did this based on his own authority, right? So it is in 1854, not in my notes, I said 1954, that's not correct. 1854, uh, December 8th, he writes, in effabilis uh, Deus, it is uh, in Latin, the ineffable God. Uh, Pope Pius IX defined his dogma of the Immaculate Conception. I want to include a quote here because it's important uh, for you to understand how significant of an issue this is. Not a small issue by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, quote, <clears throat> this is Pope Pius IX speaking in 1854. We declare, pronounce, and define that the doctrine which holds that the most blessed Virgin Mary, in the first instance of her conception, by a singular grace and privilege granted by Almighty God, in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the human race, um, to clarify, now he's going to go back to talk about Mary, she was preserved free from all stain of original sin. This is a doctrine revealed by God and therefore to be believed firmly and constantly by all the faithful, unquote. Now, that's December of 1854. Uh, that is one of the summation statements of what he, uh, Pope Pius IX, releases on this. Uh, now, it's not that he doesn't do his homework. He does do his homework. He talks to many, many people about this. Uh, but as far as it comes down, this is the Pope just simply on his own authority writing this. At a time in the 1850s, at a time when large swaths of Western culture are looking with suspicion on any singular person with that level of influence. And so that should tell you a couple of things. One, it should tell you that Pope Pius IX is doubling down on the concept of papal authority, but it's also communicating to us the importance uh, that he places on this uh, specific thing that he is uh, expressing. When it comes up to clarity on these issues, 
1854 uh, leads very quickly four years later to the most important aspect of, of, of support for this teaching as well. And that is in 1858, the Lady of Lourdes. The Lady of Lourdes, uh, or Lourdes, technically speaking, uh, is a kind of a bizarre story, especially if you're Protestant, uh, kind of a hard thing to wrap your head around. Um, but I want to include it because it really speaks to us of how Catholicism is going to interact with the modern world uh, with regards to its own theology and how it knows things uh, is going to be very different and starkly different uh, than the modernist world that it finds itself in all of a sudden. Uh, the Lady of Lourdes is um, is a series of, I'm going to be very careful with my words here, a series of apparitions that happens in southern France in, this, in the town of Lourdes um, between, uh, well, it starts in February and largely it's in February and March of 1858. Uh, it goes all the way up to July for a couple of things there, but largely it's in February and March of 1858. The story is that a young girl uh, uh, who was 14 years old at the time, her name was Bernadette uh, Subiru. Uh, she began reporting multiple apparitions of what later is identified as the Virgin Mary. Uh, these are these are sightings of of something that uh, it, at least initially she doesn't necessarily know who this is. Um, it's not just one or two uh, sightings either. Uh, there was eighteen in total, um, and it was outside of a cave uh, in southern France, or called the Grotto. And you can go to this. Even today, there's about 6 million people who come and visit there every day. Or every year, rather. Excuse me, not every day. Um, and she wasn't the only one to witness this. Uh, by the end of the the last apparitional appearances, there were hundreds of people that were gathered to witness as what was described as the Virgin Mary. Um, and the story goes that in, during one of her earlier apparitions that uh, the Virgin Mary told uh, this girl to dig a hole in the ground next to a natural spring there. Uh, and that spring was used for a lot of people to be healed over the years. Um, now a lot, almost what well, I think, I think the count right now is claimed to be 64 um, of the, you know, hundreds of millions of people that have been there. So um, not that many, but it is, it is an interesting uh, claim nonetheless. Um and also the reality that hundreds of people reported having witnessed uh, what was described as the Virgin Mary there as well, um, appearing and, you know, nobody, you know, being able to physically interact with her, but to hear her speak and, uh, you know, to see her and things like this. Um, <clears throat> thankfully, I will say just on the theological side of things, at least if you're Catholic, the apparition uh, called itself the Immaculate Conception by saying, I am the Immaculate Conception. Uh, which, you know, four years after Pope Pius IX had talked about this and made that definition that confirmed for everyone that Pope Pius IX was indeed right, uh, that she was immaculately conceived, immaculately conceived. And uh, it was most helpful in solving the theological issue, at least in the Catholic mindset, that the Pope was right after all. And because there was a number of people that were questioning whether or not the Pope had the authority to do this, and uh, wouldn't you know it, four years later, uh, you know, a, a peasant girl gets to see the Virgin Mary who calls herself this and confirmed it. Now, if you're Protestant, I know what's going through your mind. Uh, if you're Catholic, I kind of know what's going through your mind. But if you're modernist uh, and you're listening to this kind of stuff, uh, I also know what's going through your mind. And everyone's got their own interactions with these things. Uh, and that's that's one of the most fascinating aspects of this is how the Catholic world is going to interact in the modernist world, because obviously there's going to be challenges that come down to this directly, because this is going to challenge how we know this. How do we know that happened? You can't even go up and, you know, and verify this with, you know, unless I'm there, unless I can see it, you know, kind of like Thomas with Jesus, right? Unless I can see it, unless I can feel, it, unless I can verify these things or hear her words, how could I ever believe that such a thing would happen? Um, 
you know, in this, in this world at this point here in the modern world. And so there's obviously, there's all sorts of calls against that. There's all sorts of um, adulation for this in the Catholic church as well. Obviously it confirms that um, uh, in, in a lot of Catholics minds, the, the issue of this being, uh, you know, a done deal. Now the, the reality, the Immaculate conception, if you have the Pope and the Virgin Mary agreeing on something, uh, then, you know, uh, who, who is anyone else to question that? Obviously the Pope's going a good way. Um, but there has to be a, a, an official statement on this somehow. There, not not just on the the appearance of the Lady of Lourdes, but um, but there has to be a statement from a council to actually express uh, whether or not the Pope has the authority to do this, and also how is the Catholic Church going to interact with the modern world? And that's where Vatican I uh, enters the story. Uh, again, if you are taking notes, Vatican I. 1869 to 1870. Very important. Uh, very important for two different things. One, it's going to define how the Catholic Church is going to interact with the modernist world, uh, especially with the challenges of faith and reason and all this kind of stuff. I'll walk you through that, so hang on. Uh, but it's also going to come down, the most significant decision that comes out of Vatican I is going to be, or the Council of Vatican I, is going to be the the definition of papal primacy and the dogma of papal infallibility. <coughs> so we're going to talk about those two things here tonight. Um, you know, Vatican won in its decisions. Now, if you can see 1869 to 1870, we're talking, you know, <clears throat> we're talking 15 years after uh, the proclamation of the, the dogma of, um, of immaculate conception by Pope Pius IX. Uh, so in, in 1870, again, my notes say 1970. What is happening in my notes? Uh, in, in 1870, um, they release two statements. The first one in April, the second one in July. The first one in April is Dei Filios. Uh, and it is the first proclamation from Vatican I. And the dealings are with the ongoing issue of faith and reason. The Catholic Church is going to in this council, release its instructions for how to interact with the modern world and what statements the church is going to make about what do we do when the natural world says a certain aspect uh, of, of reality, and then our interpretation of scripture says a different reality, even if it's not authoritative interpretation or a clear statement of the church, you know, how is it that we're going to solve the apparent discords between these? Well, uh, Dei Filius will actually say this in specific, uh, with specificity. The dealings uh, with the ongoing issue of faith and reason. Uh, I want to share with you two quotes from this and then uh, talk a little bit about it. Uh, one of the first quotes here in Dei Filius uh, on this issue is, uh, quote, God, the principle and end of all things, can be known with certainty by the natural light of human reasoning from created things. I want you to think about that for a second. God can be known with certainty, not with ultimate clarity. He can be known with certainty by the natural light of human reason from the natural order, from created things. Uh, this is well attested to in scripture. I agree with this. Uh, even as a Protestant, I will I will fully agree with uh, the statement that God um, can be known from the things that have been made. Now, the reason I agree with that is also because it's clearly stated and taught in Romans chapter 1, uh, but also that it's it's part of the purpose of the natural world, right? And and Catholic theology will say the same thing. The natural world is part of the what what what, um, what Protestants will call the book of nature, right? We have the, the, the book of scripture and we have the book of nature. We have uh, another common way to talk about it is we have special revelation and we have general revelation. God can be known in both of them, but the the specific the, the, the specifics of salvation and and uh, and of Christ those things are going to be reserved for special revelation for the scriptures themselves. It's not like you're going to go out uh, onto the mountainside or into the wilderness and be able to solve you know the you know what the resurrection of Jesus is. Uh, uh, body is going to accomplish as a first fruits in the you know in the eschaton. 
that none of that you're going to find in nature. But that God is, and I'll quote Romans 1 here, uh, eternally powerful and by nature divine. Those things can be clearly perceived in the things that God has made. Uh, and, and it's an important thing for the Catholic Church to come out and answer this. And it's also important for Protestants to say the same thing, that natural light of human reason can look at created things and is obligated to see the creator through those things. It's not that we can argue that salvation can be achieved simply through the natural world and through natural reason or through, excuse me, the book of nature. Now, when we look at the created things and uh, we try to interpret them, are we going to have perfect interpretation of all things? No. Uh, We're not going to have perfect interpretation of all things. We don't even have that about the scriptures. And so uh, Dei Filius will continue to work on this uh, logical thread and pull on it a bit. Uh, uh, Another summation quote inside there, quote, there can never be any real discrepancy between faith and reason, the council argues, since the same God who reveals mysteries and infuses faith has bestowed the light of reason on the human mind, and God cannot deny himself, nor can truth ever contradict truth. Now, before I go on, let me interrupt. interrupt. So, end quote. Truth cannot ever contradict truth. Now, the way I've tried to describe this before, and it's a really important aspect uh, of, of, of having good theology in the modern world. And so, honestly, kudos to the Catholic Church for expressing this so well. Um, yeah, I say that as a Baptist, okay? <laughs> so that you know, this idea of, you know, there's discrepancies between faith and reason, uh, you know, you know, if we if we look at the created world and then we look at um, in in the Catholic world, uh, scripture and tradition, uh, as a Protestant, I would just look at it scripture. Uh, if we can look at all of these things and say there's discrepancies between them, the idea is that truth can't tr- contradict truth, right? So we know scripture is true. Uh, in the Catholic world, scripture and tradition is true, right? The the Holy See, the you know the magisterium, all of these things. All of this would be representative of truth over here, and then on a whole other uh, uh, whole other sphere, the natural world has its own truth as well. But all truth ultimately, they're saying, belongs to God. And truth will never contradict truth because they have the same source. And so the the logic through this is that there there may be apparent contradictions, but that has much more to do with our interpretation. That's not me theorizing. Let me quote Vatican I on this. Dei Filius as well, uh, open quote. The false appearance of such contradiction is mainly due either to the dogmas of faith not having been understood or expounded according to the mind of the church, either, so I'll interrupt for a second, either we're not understanding the actual dogmas of the church properly or scripture or tradition, we're missing something over here, we're interpreting something wrong over here, open quote, or to the inventions of opinion having been taken for the verdicts of reason, close quote. In other words, when we have apparent contradiction between faith and reason, it is not possible, seeing as they both come from the same God, for there to be actual contradictions. I'll give you the classic example that's going to become a massive topic going forward for the Protestant and evangelical world, and that is the issue of evolution, right? Uh, at least macroevolution, right? So, let me just put this one out there, right? The issue on faith uh, in the in the classic Protestant or conservative expression is that the scriptures are really, really clear on how God created the world. <clears throat> and seven days and, you know, 6,000 years ago, all of this kind of stuff, right? When we go to the natural world without that, we don't come to that conclusion at all. We come to a completely different place from the natural order. Now, I, I think one of the weaknesses that a lot of Christians have is saying that the one that we have here is like uber truth. Therefore, anything we see in the natural world is wrong if it disagrees with this at all. That's kind of begging the question 
That's not actually the right way to do this or the right way to answer these questions. The right way to answer these questions is to say, everything that I'm seeing, wherever it is, natural world as part of the general revelation of God, or the scriptures, if you're Protestant, just the scriptures, and and uh, that is the special revelation of God, these two will for sure agree in the mind of God. It means that we are somewhere interpreting our evidence incorrectly, whether that means we're interpreting the scriptures incorrectly or we're interpreting the natural world and the evidences in both incorrectly or we're wrong in both because we're seeing in part and we're seeing pieces. And I, even if you were the most stalwart conservative Christian looking at Genesis, you have to be honest, that's not an exhaustive account of all the things that happened for the first several thousand years of the earth. But over here, you have to understand that in the natural world, digging up this fossil or that fossil or, or piecing this together or trying to reconstruct this, you're still working with bits and pieces. It comes down to a difference of interpretation. But the the thing that Dei Filius is saying and the thing that I have been trying to teach for a long time is that the problem is going to reside in the interpretations. We must, as Christians, whether Catholic, Protestant, or Orthodox, hold that all truth truly belongs to God, whether you dig it up with bones in the desert or whether you dig it up from the literary techniques used in Genesis or used in Jonah or whatever the case may be. All truth, regardless of its source, regardless of where it resides, whether special or general, whether scripture or nature, whether, even if also tradition, if you're in the Catholic world, these things belong to God. And how we understand them is limited by us. And this is exactly what Dei Filius says, is that uh, if we have a misunderstanding in the spiritual realm, that that's an apparent contradiction to the natural world, because they'll say that it, it's uh, it, the contradiction is mainly due either to the dogmas of the faith not having been understood or expounded properly in the mind of the church. In other words, we have wrong theology or wrong interpretations of the of the theology that God has given both in scripture and tradition, or it's that we're not understanding the natural order properly. They say, or to the inventions of opinion having been taken for the verdicts of reason. Real reason is not going to disagree with the revelation of God because God made reason too. But our use of reason may indeed be incorrect, but it's not going to be wrong in God's mind. And I think that's a very important distinction to make. I'm glad that Vatican I makes that distinction. Uh, what I said earlier that I, I take issue with just one little piece of it, and that is uh, that they put <clears throat> the uh, it, that it's the dogmas of the faith not having been understood or expounded according to the mind of the church. I would actually say uh, it goes beyond tradition back to scripture, but that's just me being Protestant uh, and right. Uh, no offense. <laughs> Um, so that is Dei Filius, very important statement. It is the official answer of the Catholic Church to the modernist world, and especially to the radical enlightenment, these, um, these challenges towards the Catholic Church of, we have reason, why do we need the Pope? Why do we even need to answer, you know, papal infallibility or questions like this or anything like that? So, uh, important stuff, Dei Filius. The second thing that Vatican I issues in 1870 it's called Pastor Eternus. Uh, Pastor Eternus is the answer to why the council joined together in the first place. Not only did they have the modernist issues to solve, but they had this big old elephant in the room uh, named papal infallibility. Uh, this was the question that was on everyone's mind. Uh, the uh, Pope Pius IX had just defined a dogma of the church that everyone is required to believe uh, because the church has spoken with clarity on this, that he had the authority to do this. This is the massive issue of Vatican I, the declaration or the definition of papal primacy and the dogma of papal infallibility. Uh, now, I want to clarify this for my Protestant hearers. Um, papal infallibility does not mean that the Pope is infallible. Papal infallibility is a specific teaching that... When the papal office 
is being exercised uh, when the Pope is exercising his office as shepherd and teacher of all Christians. Uh, they say specifically in this release of Pastor Eternus, in virtue of his supreme apostolic authority, he defines a doctrine concerning faith or morals. It is to be held by the whole church. Uh, the idea is that he is actually preserved by the power of the Holy Spirit from the possibility of error when he is speaking in an official ex-cathedra declaration on matters of faith and morals. That's a lot of terminology, so let me pull it apart a little bit. When the Pope speaks in an official ex-cathedra, that means out of the chair of Peter, a, a specific declaration on matters of faith and morals, that he is supernaturally preserved from error by the Holy Spirit. When this Pope speaks, this is the decision of Vatican I. Now, now you have conciliarism giving itself up. The, the Council of Vatican I gives up conciliar power uh, and hands it over to the Pope, essentially. Um, <clears throat> the Pope, when he speaks ex cathedra, uh, is not subject to the cardinals, is not subject to the people when he does this. Uh, it is not everything that the Pope says. I want to be really, really, really clear on this. The, uh, the, the declaration of ex cathedra has only happened twice. One was Pope Pius IX in, when he defined uh, and clarified the doctrine of the, <coughs> the Immaculate Conception. That was retroactively considered ex cathedra and considered legitimate papal infallibility. So no changes needed to be made for it. The next one doesn't happen until the mid 1900s, uh, when uh, we'll discuss this when we get there. When the when the Pope at that point uh, declared the assumption of Mary into heaven as uh, as additional dogma, uh, and so that that there uh, becomes the only other time hasn't been used uh, since. Uh, I have a feeling if if I want to bring my crystal ball of proclamation or of uh, prophecy out, I have a feeling it will be used very soon. Uh, to to continue to um, to grow uh, the concept of Mariology in the minds of Catholic Christians, um, there seem to be many that are pushing for Mary to receive specific and fully clarified uh, titles, uh, Queen of Heaven, and and so forth, um, and uh, Mediatrix, um, and and things like this. So there's. There's some developments happening in Catholicism that may happen in the next generation. We'll have to wait and see. Um, now, I want you to kind of wrap your head around a lot of this, uh, especially if you are Catholic, but you're also American. How how would you handle some of the splits? And I'm saying if you were back in like 1870, how would you handle some of this split loyalty, this concept that here you live in a country in America that has thrown off all sovereigns, thrown off kings. We have representative government. We have self-rule. Um, but your religion is exactly the opposite. The Pope has full power, can come down and establish a dogma tomorrow that none of you can question and no council can turn back. Um, you, you, we've entered a completely different version of doubling down. Uh, and so there's actually a lot of Catholics in America that were not overly thrilled with these developments. A lot of bishops as well, uh, because that that is such a <clears throat> such a final answer to something that had been in people's questioning minds for most of the history of the Catholic Church. There had been this wrestle that went back and forth between council and pope, and you know, you know, it, it's only going to take another Western schism, like in the 1300s. Uh, before a council of Florence comes and fixes it, right? Uh, but here we're almost eliminating the ability of councils to override any popes. Uh, this is really strange, and it's new territory, and we haven't yet seen it fully tested. What about when a pope goes haywire? You know, uh, now according to Catholic theology, that can't happen when he's speaking ex cathedra. Uh, but for us Protestants, we're kind of just watching this and going, well, at some point, you know, we know that there become issues in the papal office. How are you going to deal with that? How are you going to deal with that? It's not that the popes and everything they say and in all their opinions, they're they're speaking ex cathedra. They're not. Um, all the stuff that Pope Francis says that, you know, makes 
uh, makes conservative Catholics cringe a little bit. Um, you know, all that needs to be done is is something infallibly defined that makes people cringe, and it it's there's no answer to it. There's no corrective, and we've never really been at this place in Catholicism where there's absolutely no corrective on the papal office uh, with regards to defining things like this. So it's going to be very interesting uh, to see how that affects the next hundred years. Um, yeah. Uh, it, it gives, it begins to give rise to what will be called Tridentine Catholicism. Tridentine Catholicism is going to be uh, what you would consider or what you would probably have run into as old school Catholics, traditional Catholics, those who look back to the Council of Trent for their uh, clarity and for their foundation. They don't really want to pay attention largely to Vatican I. Uh, now, I say this starts that because <clears throat> nothing's going to shove it forward as a full-on movement in the Catholic Church uh, like Vatican II uh, in, the, in the late 20th century, but we'll talk about that when we get there. Uh, Tridentine Catholic, uh, Catholicism will focus on you know, Latin mass and heavily traditional uh, liturgies, um, a strict response to the Reformation, uh, a, a lessening of any ecumenical attempts and uh, and things like this, um, you know, especially on the, the strict responses to the Reformation, transubstantiation, scripture and tradition, the role of good works and ongoing justification, stuff like this. Um, that will largely explode in the 20th century. Uh, after Vatican II, because Vatican II cedes so much ground uh, to, uh, that that really conservative Catholicism tried to have for so long. Um, all right, if you're taking notes, the last little thing I want to include here at the end is the fall of the papal states. Now, we didn't talk much about this because it it really has much more to do with political theater and uh, and and you know political movements in in the Italian peninsula. Um, then it really has to do with theology and church history, as far as I'm concerned. Um, but the fall of the papal states is significant. Um, and, and this is, this is a, a unique moment on this. It's something worth, uh, checking into. It's something worth reading into. If you're curious about this, it happens in 1870, the last year of Vatican one. Uh, you know, so we haven't moved at all. This is, this is happening on the doors, uh, outside, right? Uh, and that is the fall of the papal states. So uh, Victor Emmanuel II is the leader who uh, goes to war with the last remaining papal army. Uh, after the French uh, guards had left uh, the Italian peninsula, uh, that they were there helping the papal armies to, uh, to defend the papal states. Now, the papal states is a very large section uh, at this point in history of what, it, what you would call southern Italy today. Um, Victor Emmanuel II goes to war with the last papal army and removes from the church all the papal lands, all of them. And he unifies the entirety of the peninsula uh, that you and I know of as Italy, and he turns it into essentially the modern state of Italy. Uh, he removed all lands from the pope and from the church. Obviously, he gets excommunicated for this. Interesting story. <clears throat> something somebody needs to make a uh, uh, a movie of. If there is one that exists, let me know. I'd like to watch that. But uh, it sounds like a fascinating story that um, hasn't been told enough. Um, the newly minted infallible Pope uh, declares himself to be a prisoner in the Vatican. So quite a roller coaster year for the Pope uh, in 1870, who goes from you know having the ability to speak ex cathedra uh, to then all of a sudden being prisoner inside the Vatican. Um, and he actually instructs Catholics to not take part in the new Italian political order. And there, there you can see uh, some of this uh, church and state overlap issues that people are talking about and kind of the increasing concern that, you know, maybe maybe Catholicism is only okay, you know, living subservient to the state until the state reacts to it in some way. Um now this happens in 1870. The the church and the pope are without land holdings for the next 59 years. It wasn't until Mussolini in 1929 with the creation of Vatican City, uh which is a brand new country completely encased inside Italy 
they create Vatican City as a new country in 1929 uh, and make it able to rule itself, have its own post office, its own uh, borders. It is the walled city of Vatican City. Uh, is the smallest country in the world and uh, kind of a remarkable story. Now, I, again, that's in the last hundred years. So we are coming up to this, this idea that when you're looking at Vatican City or, you know, the papal authority and all this stuff, this is kind of had been how the Roman church has been all the, everything changes and everything's in flux. That's, that's literally four generations ago. That's not that long ago. Um, and, uh, and, and an interesting story and study in the 20th century when we get there uh, for that. Um, but with that, that brings us to the end of 19th century Catholicism, um, and we're right at an hour, so I'm going to let us go here tonight. Uh, I appreciate your attention. I appreciate the uh, uh, the focus on these things. It's important stuff, and especially as Protestants, it helps us to understand um, some of those in the Catholic branch of the Christian church uh, to maybe understand their history a little bit better, maybe understand ourselves and them a little bit better. Um and uh, I hope that helps. Um, and uh, Lord's blessings to you all. I appreciate uh, the attention and the time.